God isn't just saving Jacob. He is changing Jacob. You need to see that. God saves so as to sanctify, so as to change. He saves us in order to restore us to our original design and purpose. We were originally created to represent and resemble God before all creation. That's what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Well, to state the obvious, God doesn't lie. God doesn't cheat. God doesn't steal. And so God is teaching Jacob to hate those things so that he can be, again, the image and likeness of God. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. God saves in order to sanctify. He doesn't just forgive us. He changes us and restores us to our original design and purpose. I love that. It sounds painful, but in the end, it will be good. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 29. I love how Derek Kidner introduces the narrative in this chapter. He says, In Laban, Jacob met his match and his means of discipline. Twenty years of drudgery and friction were to weather his character. Through this man, he also drank deeply of his own medicine of duplicity. Yet even as the loser, he displayed qualities that were lacking in Esau. That's a great introduction. This chapter is about how God shapes and matures and tests and refines those whom he chooses. But it is also about some of what God saw when he looked at Jacob. Jacob was a man of action, a man of faith, a man of energy, tenacity, resilience, and zeal. And above all, a man of love. We pick up the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Now, we are clearly to understand this as a gift of providence. Just as when Abraham's servant traveled to Haran to secure a wife for Isaac and was met by Rebekah, so here Jacob is immediately met by Rachel. This story reads like an illustration of Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. God has directed Jacob's path right to the woman he will eventually marry. In verse 7, as Rachel is arriving on the scene, Jacob continues to talk to the shepherds. He said, Behold, 
it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. This little episode shows a lot of what it seems that God loved in the character of Jacob. Jacob has his flaws. Of that, there is no doubt. But he has his qualities as well. And here they are on full display. He is a man of action, thrust, and zeal. The shepherds were waiting for the full group of them to arrive so that they could lift the stone lid off the well as a team Jacob manages the feat all on his own. So either Jacob was a very large man or this is something of a mini miracle. The point is, this is not a brother who wants to sit around and wait. This is a man who wants to give it a try. He reminds us already of his more famous great-grandson David who would take the field against the giant while only a young boy, right? There was zeal, courage, and not a little jam in this man and in his seed. And the Lord delights in that and comes alongside of that with divine help and intervention. I just think that's worth noticing. We also see that Jacob is a man of deep affections. This is the only record that I know of of a man in the Bible kissing a woman who's not his wife. Now, there's nothing improper here, but, but this is certainly forward. Jacob is a man of passion. He sees in this meeting the hand of providence, and he is sure that this woman is going to be his wife, and he is already head over heels in love. See that. He loves the woman. He believes that God has led him to. Faith and affection can and should go together. Verse 13 says, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Now, we aren't sure what the Hebrew means when it says that Leah had weak eyes. It could mean that she didn't see very well, or it could mean that her eyes were a weak, lighter, washed-out color. We aren't sure. What we are sure of is that Jacob only had eyes for Rachel. 
Given that he didn't have any money, he agrees to work seven years in order to earn her hand in marriage. Now, this would have been a very high price in those days, but to Jacob, it seemed only a few days because of his great love. Again, we are learning some things about Jacob in this story. He's a hard worker and he's a man of passion. Those are good qualities. Those are qualities God is attracted to. But there are also a number of things that God is determined to work on. And we begin to see that happening in the verses that follow. Verse 21 says, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Matthew Henry says here, It is easy to observe here how Jacob was paid in his own coin. He had cheated his own father when he pretended to be Esau, and now his father-in-law cheated him. This is God being a good parent. How many times have you said to your kid, how would you like it if someone did that to you? Maybe you've even flicked an ear or, or spanked a hand after your child has flicked or smacked his or her sibling. What you're trying to do when you do that is teach your child empathy, the ability to understand and sympathize with what other people are feeling. Jacob had deceived his brother and his father, but he hadn't thought about how they felt about that. And now God the Father is flicking Jacob's ear rather significantly through Laban. He is doing to him exactly as he has done to others. He is teaching Jacob that deception hurts, that cheating hurts, that stealing hurts. God isn't just saving Jacob, he is changing Jacob. You need to see that. God saves so as to sanctify, so as to change. He saves us in order to restore us to our original design and purpose. We were originally created to represent and resemble God before all creation. That's what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Well, to state the obvious, God doesn't lie. God doesn't cheat. God doesn't steal. And so God is teaching Jacob to hate those things so that he can be, again, the image and likeness of God. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Pastor Paul, I want to talk a little bit more here about this if we can, because this is a pretty important part of the story, and one I think that modern Christians are in the habit of overlooking. It's pretty clear here that God is paying Jacob back in his own coin, as Matthew Henry says, not to punish Jacob, but to purify Jacob. So this isn't one of those Old Testament things that we don't have to worry about as New Testament believers. This is still a part of how God works and moves in the lives of his children, is it not? Absolutely. In fact, in the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 13, the apostle says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed, closed quote. So these people here were going through something bad, something hard, but not fatal. He says they haven't yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, but they are suffering. And he says this is not punishment. This is not God rejecting you. This is God refining you. This is God loving you and training you so that you can become the sons and daughters he has saved and destined you to be. So snap out of it, he says. Stop walking around with your hangdog face thinking God hates you. That's not what this is. God loves you. You are his child. And like a good dad, he's dealing with your nonsense. Verse 11 is pure gold. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So take the long view. And when we take the long view, we see that this story really is a huge part of how God changed and transformed the character and nature of Jacob. At the start of this story, he was deceitful. He was scheming. He was sly. He was underhanded. And at the end of the story, he is wrestling face to face with almighty God. We'll see that in a couple of chapters. So God knows how to take a boy and make a man, metaphorically speaking, and literally speaking, in the case of Jacob. Mm, right on. Okay, that's very helpful. You also mentioned God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? That's from the book of Job, isn't it? Yeah, that's Job thirty-six twenty-two. but it works really well as a summary for Genesis chapter 29. Absolutely. Let's jump back in now to the text at verse 26. We jump back into the text at verse 26. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So basically what has happened in this bizarre story is that on Jacob's wedding night, perhaps after drinking a fair bit of wine, Leah was in the marital tent instead of Rachel, though Jacob didn't know that at first because she was probably wearing a veil. Maybe it was dark in the tent. We don't know. The point is, in the morning, when Jacob complains about having been deceived without reflecting on the obvious irony in so doing, Laban agrees to give him Rachel as well, provided he work another seven years. So Jacob gets a second wife and must now work another seven years. 
Now, again, we should probably say a few words about polygamy here, the practice of having more than one wife. We spoke about this earlier in the case of Abraham when we talked about how while the patriarchs had the example of Adam and Eve, there was no law yet that would have outlawed what Jacob did here. A law against marrying two sisters does go on the books later in the Bible in Leviticus 18.18, but that's still a long way in the future. What we can say for sure is that Jacob didn't seek this. His own father, Isaac, only had one wife, but here he is tricked into it. And the conflict that results is illustration enough of why the practice of having multiple wives was frowned upon even before it was officially outlawed in the Bible. We jump back into the story at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, let me just stop here and explain this word hated. Most scholars believe that it really meant something closer to loved less. Matthew Henry even compares it to the strange statement of Jesus about hating mothers, brothers, wives, and children in comparison to our love for him in Luke 14. He says this, he says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, that is, loved less than Rachel, in which sense it is required that we hate father and mother in comparison with Christ, Luke 14, 26. Then the Lord granted her a child, which was a rebuke to Jacob for making so great a difference between those that he was equally related to, closed quote. I think that's probably useful for us to see. I get asked about that saying in Luke 14 all the time, and I think it's just helpful to understand that the word hated here in the Hebrew culture had the sense of love less. Jacob loved Leah less, which he should not have done. And Jesus says that some of us love him less than our wives, sons, daughters, and husbands, which we should not do. Loving people less than we should, or more than we should, can get us into trouble. Verse 32 says, And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son. And said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son. And said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now, there is something very sad in overhearing Leah's attempts to win her husband's love. She thinks that if she outproduces Rachel, she may earn a greater share of her husband's affections. It obviously doesn't work. And by the birth of the fourth child, she says, This time I will praise the Lord. Leah may have been guilty of loving her husband more than God at the beginning of her marriage. She may have been guilty of finding her identity in her husband's love at the beginning of her marriage. But by the birth of Judah, she seems to have her affections back in their proper order and her identity rooted in the proper place. The Lord is working on Leah too. Just like we saw back with Sarah, it is not enough to be married to a person of faith. God wanted Sarah to believe as well. And here we see that God wants Leah to believe. God wants Leah to know him and to trust him and to delight in him above all things, even her husband.
having chosen Jacob, having saved Jacob, he is now saving and shaping and teaching and transforming his entire family. Thanks be to God. Okay, Pastor Paul, I've got a bit of an out-of-the-box question for you. I know that the main point of the last section in chapter 29 has to do with God teaching Leah to find her value and identity in him and not in her role as a mother. But I wonder, too, if her weakness and her sort of second-class status might also be one of the reasons that Judah, the son she bore once she was in a right relationship with God— was in fact the son chosen to be the line of promise that would eventually lead to Jesus. Is that a real thing, or am I reading too much into that? Well, it's certainly a good question, and it's a question that tends to get asked by Bible readers and Bible scholars. Why does God choose Judah to be the line of promise in the family of Jacob? Because actually, as we keep reading the story, it would appear to us that Joseph would be the more natural choice. Joseph was the child born to Rachel, so you could say he was the child of love, but then far more importantly, he is kind of the only good guy in the last 10 or 12 chapters of the book. He is the agent of the salvation and redemption of the people of Israel, humanly speaking. So why doesn't God choose him? And then even if God isn't going to choose Joseph, why in the world does he choose Judah? Judah is the worst of all the brothers. He was the one who's going to want to sell Joseph into slavery for money. And then there's a whole chapter, chapter 38, about how Judah was a bad dad, how he slept with prostitutes, how he accidentally had sex with his daughter-in-law. Judah is an absolute gong show. So how and why does God end up choosing him as the eventual line of promise through whom both David and Jesus will eventually come? Now, obviously, it's dangerous to say too much about why God does anything. His ways are higher than our ways. But I think we can say that the selection of Judah is a further reminder that no one earns their way into God's mercy. That can't be done. You can't earn mercy. If you could earn mercy, it wouldn't be mercy. So God often chooses those who are pretty far off the path, and he works grace and mercy into their life, and he woos, wins, and sometimes drags them up out of the mud and onto the elevated highway that leads to salvation and glory and eternal life. We see it here with Judah, and we see it again and again and again in the gospel story. Thanks be to God. Mm, amen. Yeah, I'll second that. So good. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet